invite you to turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. As most of you know, one of my primary responsibilities here at the church is to lead our church's ministry to teens, to middle school students and to high school students. And our Wednesday night group just finished um, a study on what it means to be human. And this morning I'm going to share some of what we've learned. And uh, for the teens who are here, they're going to recognize um, some of what's on the screen. Um, I've, I've taken about four months of material, and Joe's given me three weeks to share what we've learned. So my colossal task was to take four months of material and try to boil it down to something that is hopefully, Lord willing, useful for us. Um, I spend quite a bit of time with both teens, with high school students, middle school students, with college-age students. And uh, as a pastor, um, over the years I've been a pastor, I've developed um, quite a few burdens of areas where, where I sense that students, year 2022, around this time, areas where they need to be grounded in their faith. And I've had several, several burdens I've developed over the past few years. A burden to help our students be grounded in their faith, to develop a biblical foundation for both what they believe and why they believe it. I think it's critical that Christian students, and really every Christian, develop a thoroughly biblical understanding of the gospel and of salvation, of the significance of the local church, and of the supreme authority of Scripture. But recently, I've had a new burden. This new burden um, is going back to something much, much more basic. Students today need to be taught what it means to be human. What does it mean to be human? We can no longer assume that most people inside and outside the church, know the answer to that question. As Carl Truman, leading church historian, says in his most recent book published earlier this year, the generation gap today is reflected not simply in fashion and music, but in attitudes and beliefs about some of the most basic aspects of human existence. He says that for many people, the Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it things that almost everybody believed as unquestionably true the the day before yesterday, are now labeled as heresy by the loudest voices in society. And he says, he says, welcome to this strange new world. You may not like it, but it is where you live, and therefore it is important that you try to understand it. That's one of the first pages of his most recent book that he just published earlier this year, Strange New World. I think there's at least one copy of it um, in the lobby. It's a strange new world. There's another theologian, leading theologian, Owen Strand. He agrees. In 2019, he wrote, If we have assumed in past days that the church held a meaningful anthropology or an accurate understanding of what it means to be human, if we assume that our children learned what they needed to know just by going to church and growing up in America, he says, Let us be clear that we may hold this assumption no longer. But it's not just students. It's all of us. All of us need a robust, vigorous, strong understanding of what it means to be human. And it must be more than just knowledge that fills our brains. It must be conviction that we believe with every part of our being. Truth that we are willing to live and die for. So what does it mean to be human? I get three weeks to teach our church on the subject. And we're going to look at the topic from three angles. 
as a human being, how should I see myself? As a human being, how should I see God? As a human being, how should I see others? This week we're considering how should I see myself as a human being? Next week we're considering the question, how should I as a human being see God? We're going to study the prayer in Psalm 8. The psalmist says, Oh God, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is a son of man that you care for him? We're going to consider the implications of the first three chapters of Genesis. And then at the end of the month, we're going to answer the question, how should I as a human being see others? Because the reality is, you are wonderfully made by God, for God, in the image of God. And so is every other person you have ever met or ever will meet. Every human soul is precious and priceless, and Christians must affirm and defend the dignity, the worth, and the value of all people, even if they are different than us, even if they are weaker than us, or even if they are offensive to us. That is the responsibility of Christians, to affirm and defend the dignity, the worth, the value of all people, no matter who they are, how big they are, what they look like, how they're different from us, how we perceive them. The responsibility is to champion the dignity of all people. Let's pray. God, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by your very word so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You, God, are our maker. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church and as individuals to understand and embrace your purpose for making us I pray, God, that you would give us the grace and the wisdom to see ourselves clearly and accurately, that we would not think any more of ourselves than we ought or any less of ourselves than we ought. I pray, God, that ultimately our focus this morning would not end with us but would ricochet into endless praise of you. God, please fill us with love and wonder as we worship Jesus, the image of the invisible God the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the divine nature. To him be glory in the church forever and ever. Amen. So again, what does it mean to be human? Or let me turn it on you. What does it mean for you to be a human being? When you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you think about yourself? What should you think about yourself when you see yourself in the mirror? In order to answer these questions, we must go to the source. We must learn from God what it means to be human. I want to argue that the one who made you gets to define you. The one who made you gets to define you. We're going to read Psalm 139. But before we read, I want to note that all I'm doing with this passage today is just answering a systematic theology question. The question that we're answering today is what does this passage teach us about what it means to be human. So let's read Psalm 139 and answer that question. What does this passage teach us about what it means to be a human being? Psalm 139, verse 1. David, the psalmist, marvels. This is written to be a song, but it's a prayer as well. He sings, prays, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. 
I want you to pause there for a moment. I said earlier that the one who made you gets to define you. Why? Why is that? That language isn't originally with me. I've, I've heard several Christians say it, but I think it's a really crucial truth. The one who made you gets to define you. Why? Question that assertion. Why is it that the one who made you gets to define you? It's because we don't know ourselves. We don't truly understand ourselves. Not like God knows and understands us. God knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. That's the, that's the point of the first verse right there. Look at everything God knows about you. God has searched you and known you. That means that, number one, God knows you personally and meticulously. Number two, God knows every thought you think. Number three, God knows everywhere you go. God knows everything you do. God knows every word you say before you even say it. God surrounds you, behind you, in front of you, all around you. Tim Chowey's blog, reflecting on a song based on this passage, he reflects, God knows who I am at heart, who I am in my darkest moments, who I sometimes wish to be and what I sometimes long to do. He knows all there is to know about me, things I don't even know about myself. I am an open book before him, laid bare before his penetrating gaze. And just thinking about these things, it's overwhelming for David. Look where David goes next in the passage, verse six. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And David here, he just marvels at how absolute God's knowledge of him truly is. And what's true for David is true for you and me as well. God knows you absolutely, completely, intimately, inescapably, unavoidably, and inevitably. And I just want to point out that a God who knows so much about you is either really good news or it's really bad news. Because for anyone who is not personally relying on Jesus and committed to Jesus, this personal, invasive, intimate knowledge, it should be terrifying It doesn't matter what other people think about you. God knows the absolute truth about you. He knows every detail of everything you've ever done wrong. He certainly knows everything that you've tried to do right, but your good won't outweigh your bad. You can't escape God. You will be held accountable. You will face judgment. You need a savior. You need Jesus to rescue you, and he can. So trust him with your life and with your eternity. On the one hand, this invasive personal knowledge, it should be terrifying if you are not secure in Christ. But on the other hand, if you are secure in Christ, there is nothing more freeing for the Christian than knowing that God knows everything about me. He knows the worst things about me, and yet he still loves me. We cannot hide our sin from God, but for Christians, we don't have to. He knows all about it, and he's dealt with it once and for all at the cross. If you are in Christ, you are fully forgiven. 
And not only does God know these things, but he has always known these things. Look at what David says next, verse 13. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Do you get that? Do you get the fact that not only did God know you before you were born, back when your parents were the only two people in the world who knew you existed? Remember when Beck and I were expecting our first child, and, and it was our secret. We knew that God had granted new life, and we were the only ones, only ones in the world who knew. But have you ever considered the fact that, that even before that, before your parents knew that you, were, that you existed, God knew you before that. He knew you before your parents even met each other. You see, you weren't an accident. God planned your life. He planned you. Did you realize that God's knowledge of you is so intimately personal? Do you realize that you're not just a face in the crowd? What, look, what, look what this is saying when, when David's just marveling at how absolute God's knowledge of him is. Darkness is not dark to God. Heights are not high to God. Depths are not deep to God. Crowds are not camouflaged to God. Wherever you are, wherever you go, God knows you. He sees you. He knows you personally, intimately, inescapably, inevitably, completely, absolutely. There's no hiding from him. There's no escaping him. He knows your name. He knows your thoughts. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows you. So let the one who made you define you. Let the one who understands you better than you understand yourself tell you who you are. So again, what does it mean to be human? Well, according to this passage, it means simply, as a human, you are wonderfully made. You are wonderfully made by God and you are wonderfully made for God. As a human, you are wonderfully made. Wonderfully made by God and wonderfully made for God. There's more to it, of course. Just as 1, 26, 27 teaches that God created us in his image after his likeness to reflect and represent him in the created universe. The Bible says in Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is a fundamental reality to our existence as human beings that is even more profound and more glorious that we're going to consider next week. Today, we're limiting our focus just to this one simple and beautiful truth here in Psalm 139. What does it mean to be human? What should you think about yourself when you see yourself in the mirror? You should think, I am wonderfully made. Wonderfully made by God and wonderfully made for God. And and I don't want you to miss how personally significant this is. If you're taking notes, I'd actually encourage you to write it like this. Like, right wherever you're taking notes, right? I am wonderfully made. I, fill in your name. I, Greg Buchanan. Don't write Greg Buchanan because that's my name. <laughs> write your name. 
I, fill in your name, I am wonderfully made, wonderfully made by God and for God. In the time we have left, I want to offer some practical application in two parts. First, I'm going to suggest one thing that you should not do when you think about yourself in light of this verse, Psalm 139, 14. And then I'm going to suggest five things that you should do when you think about yourself in light of this verse. There's one thing you should not do when you look in the mirror. Before I say what it is, we need to look more closely at the three parts of that main point. The first part of the main point is this. You are wonderfully made. It's pretty obvious in the text. David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The next part is, you are made by God. It's also fairly obvious in the text. David says, you, God, you formed me. But then the third part, not only are you wonderfully made, not only are you made by God, but you're also made for God. You are made for God. Where does it say that? Where is that in the passage? I think it's in the first three words of verse 14. Look at verse 14. David says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This is notable. Many Christians treasure this verse, but they sometimes miss the point of it. They actually just use it to to boost their own self-esteem. They actually take this verse and they turn it into worship of themselves rather than the worship of God. They take this verse, they turn it into worship of themselves rather than worship of God. You know, they, they are having a bad day. I'm feeling bad about myself. Let me cheer myself up. Let me find something inspirational to feel good about myself. Yeah, Psalm 139. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm awesome. I'm a masterpiece. I'm a work of art. Me, 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 me. This is all about me. Oh, I don't actually feel much better. All of a sudden, it becomes all about us. But that's not what David does. He acknowledges that, yes, he is wonderfully made. And there is a beautiful and stabilizing sense of self-worth and self-dignity that comes from that. But he realizes that it's not ultimately about him. It's about God. So he doesn't say, I praise me because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He goes on and says, wonderful are your works, O God. So here's a question for you. Are you worthy of God's love? Are you worthy of God's love? David is, is marveling at how God's made him. Wonderfully made. Wonderful are God's works. God has, has shown this personal, meticulous knowledge and care for him as an individual. This is, this is receiving of this love from God. How does he get that love? Are we worthy of God's love? Well, as Christians... Yes, we are worthy of God's love. And no, we are not worthy of God's love. Yes and no. We are worthy because God loves us. But God does not love us because we are worthy. Our value as humans, which is very real, everything that I'm teaching in this series is emphasizing that human life has value, has a special, profound, God-given value and dignity that must be affirmed and defended and embraced and championed. There is value to human life, but where does that value come from? Our value as humans, which is very real, is a derived value. All of our worth comes from God. He is the source of it, and apart from him, we are nothing. I like how Keith and Chris and Getty put it in one of their songs. 
say two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Two truths simultaneously, side by side. We have worth, we have value. It does not come from us, it comes from God. We are loved not because we are worthy. We are worthy because we're loved. The worth and the value comes from God. You are wonderfully made by God, but you are wonderfully made for God. You as a human being, you do not exist for yourself. You exist for God, and that's some of the best news that you can ever hear. You need to know that about yourself. So that's the one thing you must not do when you think of yourself in light of this verse. You must not think that you exist for you. You must remember that you exist for God. But I want to suggest five things that you should do when you think about yourself in light of this verse. I began my message asking the question, when you see yourself in the mirror, what do you think about yourself? Or what should you think about yourself? Now, I could wrap up right here. I've I've already answered the question. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you should think, I am wonderfully made by God, and I am wonderfully made for God. But the reality is that many of us don't necessarily like what we see in the mirror. What's a normal reaction when somebody sees a picture of themselves? Or they look in the mirror and they see what they actually look like. Normally it's a reaction that goes something like, ugh. (laughs) Right? It's all fine and dandy to think of yourself as wonderfully made by God and for God, but let's face it, you might accept that truth and at the same time not be thrilled with what you look like in the mirror. You might not like the body that God gave you or the condition that it's in right now. But to be a human being is to have a human body. That's not all we are. Each of us has an eternal soul as well. But Psalm 139 clearly describes God's care in constructing our bodies. Look again at verse 13. God formed your inward parts. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God planned your life. Every little detail about you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God both has power over every detail in your life and that he personally planned every detail in your life? Look at verse 16. Your eyes, O God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written. Who wrote this book? In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God wrote the story of your life. He chose everything about you. R.C. Sproul powerfully put it like this. He says, there is not one piece of cosmic dust that is outside the scope of God's sovereign providence. There's not a single maverick molecule running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty. And that includes the over 20 septillion molecules that make up your body. I didn't count them. I did a Google search. How many molecules are in the human body? Every website that I came across basically said you just write a a two and then write 25 zeros after it. How many molecules are in your body? Not a single one. There's not a single maverick molecule in your body that is outside the control of God. That's not part of God's plan for your life. So there's five things to do when you see yourself in the mirror. Number one, remember that God made no mistakes when he made your body. 
even with any physical defects, real, real physical defects, or perceived physical defects, things that are actually wrong with your body or things that you just think are wrong with your body. God made no mistakes when he made your body. He made no mistakes, even with anything that you might wish that you could change about yourself. I actually encouraged the teens this when I taught it to them earlier this year. Some of you should take this first point, should write it down on a sticky note, and you should put it on the mirror in your room. Seriously. You need to hear this. You need to believe it. And you need to preach it to yourself. For some of you, every single day. God made no mistakes when he made your body. Do you believe that? Because if you don't, you are denying the essential nature of God. You're saying that God is capable of making mistakes. God did not make a mistake when he made you. He didn't make a mistake with how he made you. According to Psalm 139, 14, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, sometimes I feel like I'm more fearfully made than wonderfully made. That's not the psalmist's point. The Bible's point is that you are individually made by God. You might argue back, no, I'm just the product of my random genetics. All the genes in my gene pool came together and made me me. And I kind of feel like I'm near the bottom of the gene pool. You are the sum of your genetics. I'm not denying that. But I want you to marvel at God for a moment. Have you ever thought about where all that genetic information came from? Every genetic possibility for whether you would be short or tall, fair-skinned or dark-skinned, and every other physical trait, those are all personal decisions that God made when he planned your life. God planned out the genetics. God planned out the genetics that Adam and Eve would pass on to every descendant, all of them, including you and me. God made no mistakes when he made your body. Why? Because our God doesn't make mistakes. That doesn't mean, this is important, that doesn't mean that God gave you a perfect body without any problems. In fact, in the Bible, God takes full responsibility for when people are born deaf or blind or unable to speak. It's part of the plan that he has for every, every individual life. God didn't give you a perfect body, but he did give you the perfect body for you. You might need to accept that God's plan for your body may be different than what you would have planned for your body. But you remember, God made no mistakes when he made your body. Number two, remember that God expects you to care for the body he gave you with wisdom, humility, and gratitude. Because God made us, he owns us. Jesus made this point in Mark chapter 12. To give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. The coin that's stamped with Caesar's image belongs to God. And the human stamped with God's image belongs to God. For Christians, we belong to God not just because we're made by God, but because we're redeemed by God. That's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians six nineteen when he says, Do you not know that your body your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How do Christians glorify God in their bodies? Well, we don't present our bodies to sin. That's Paul's immediate point in the passage. But we also take care of the bodies that we've been given so that we're able to glorify God. 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
First Timothy 4, Paul recognizes that physical exercise, it's valuable. Even if spiritual exercise is more valuable. Psalm 127 says that God gives sleep as a gift. You are human, which means that you are an embodied soul. You must take care of both your soul and your body, and you take care of your body by giving it the proper nutrition and nourishment and hydration and sleep and exercise. You must not abuse or harm your body. You must not. I preach this knowing that there's people here who feel so worthless that they harm themselves so that they feel something. You must not abuse or harm your body. You must not neglect your body. You must not overindulge your body. Why? Because it's not yours. Similarly, you must not worship your body. You know, most weight rooms and fitness centers are surrounded by mirrors. It's almost impossible not to focus on your body either arrogantly or despairingly, depending on how you perceive yourself. And while on the one hand it's easy to abuse or neglect or overindulge your body, it's also easy to worship your body and start obsessing over how you look, how big your muscles are, how much weight you can move, what size clothes you can fit into, and on and on. So I say you need to commit to caring for your body with wisdom. Know what healthy habits of, of eating, rest, and exercise are. You need to care for your body with humility. Don't exercise or work out just to feed your own ego. And with gratitude. Be thankful for the body that God gave you and what he allows you to do with it. Take care of your body so that you have more strength and energy to serve God and other people. And number three, remember that God shows how beautiful and strong you would be. Everyone is not equally strong or beautiful, but beauty and strength are real gifts that are good and valuable yet temporary and fleeting. Sometimes Christians think that they have to have this anti-beauty attitude or pretend that being beautiful isn't a good thing or something that we should acknowledge or pay attention to because, you know, pay attention to what's in the heart, not what's on the outside. And I just don't think that's, that's consistent with what the Bible reveals. Sometimes Christians think that, they, that the most spiritual people dress like the Amish or like the abnegation faction in Divergent. That's not a true biblical understanding of beauty. A true biblical understanding of beauty starts with the realization that God is the source of all beauty, that we value beauty because God is beautiful. David says in Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In fact, it's because God is beauty. That's the reason why we also view, value beauty is because we're made in his image. So if God has given you gifts of beauty and strength, realize that those are very real gifts. Many people in the Bible are actually described as beautiful or especially good-looking. Sarah, Genesis 12. Rebecca, Genesis 24. Rachel, Genesis 29. Abigail, 1 Samuel 25. Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, Esther, Esther 2.7, and so on. In fact, it was said of Job's daughters at the end of the book of Job, in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Now, the right Christian thing to do is to read that verse and say, oh, but that didn't matter. The reason why it's included is because that was a good thing. That was included as, like, that's something, that's, that's a gift. It's a gift from God. Beauty, gifts of beauty, they're gifts from God. Gifts of strength, they're gifts from God. 
And it wasn't just women. There were men who were also notably and memorably good-looking. Joseph was, quote, handsome in form and appearance. Genesis 39. The Bible says of Saul that, quote, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else. 1 Samuel 9. David was known as, quote, a stalwart fellow and a warrior, sensible in speech and handsome in appearance. His son Absalom is probably given the best description of physical beauty. He's described as the most handsome man in all of Israel. 2 Samuel 14. Now, notably, Jesus was not particularly good-looking. Isaiah 53, 2 says about Jesus, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So gifts of beauty are not to be feared or despised, nor are they to be worshipped. Gifts of beauty are to be received like any other gift, as from God and for the glory of God. And I say gifts of beauty and strength because God chooses to make us beautiful in different ways and strong in different ways. He does not make us all equally beautiful and strong, nor does he make us all identically beautiful and strong. You may be beautiful in ways that others are not. You may be strong in ways that others are not. And others may be strong and beautiful in ways that you are not. But the gifts of strength that God has given you are good gifts from a good God. So be humble, grateful, and worship the giver of the gift, not the gift itself. But ultimately, these gifts are temporary and fleeting, which leads to the next point. Remember that God wants you to reject our world's obsession with physical beauty and fitness. It is constantly changing. It's often self-focused and immoral. It's normally unattainable. It's sometimes destructive and ultimately is empty and vain. First John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world's standards are subjective. They're constantly changing. There's even different standards of beauty around the world. I took a trip years ago through Southeast Asia. I saw girls near the equator. It's around 100 degrees. And uh, as they're riding their motorbikes to the city, they're, they're wearing scarves. They're wearing masks. This was before covid um, they're, they're wearing gloves and jackets and scarves in 100-plus-degree weather because they didn't want their skin to get any darker. Not only that, but they, they have creams that are designed to lighten their skin because over there, to have darker skin is considered less attractive and to have fair, pale skin is considered attractive. Whereas here in the United States, we have tanning salons and tanning sprays. Fair-skinned girls will literally lay out in the sun in their swimsuits trying to get their bodies as tan as possible. Some countries in Asia and Africa, somebody who is medically overweight is considered more physically attractive than somebody who has a healthy body weight. And actually, that was true here in the United States in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There were ads in the United States for weight gain products because being thin was considered unattractive at the time. <laughs> I've heard the comment from a lot of people for different reasons saying, I, I feel like I should have been born at a different time in a different place, right? <laughs> There's a lot of other features of physical attractiveness that vary from country to country, from culture to culture. Let's look at the portraits of British queens from the 1700s or how a bride in India gets ready for her wedding. Not to mention the Burmese women who would stretch out their necks, the Chinese who would mutilate their feet, the English who would suffocate women with tightly laced corsets, and on and on. Not only are they constantly changing, but they are normally unattainable. That's why Barbie is anatomically impossible. 
why magazines Photoshop, why the plastic surgery industry is booming, and why many young women filter every picture of themselves they post online. The world has impossible standards for beauty that are out of reach of almost everyone and then lays crushing burdens on the elite people who supposedly attain them and then struggle to keep them. The focus is always on yourself, on turning heads, on looking sexy, on finding your worth and value and identity in the affirmation and approval of others. It's destructive. It's empty and vain. God calls us to a better way as Christians. Which leads to the fifth point. Remember that God wants you to pursue imperishable beauty. He wants the enduring beauty of a worshipful heart that is gentle, quiet, and servant-minded, and the strong faith of one who trusts in God. Many people seek a personal sense of worth in the number of pounds on the scale, in the size clothes they wear, number of pounds they can lift, the number of compliments they get on their appearance, the number of views, likes, and comments they get on their social media, and on and on. Or how people responded to them back in the day, back when they were in their prime. Maybe they feel like those days where they were validated and affirmed for being beautiful and strong, they're past that season and they just live in the past, just remembering and wistfully wishing that they were still like they used to be. But all of those metrics for finding worth and value and dignity, they're, they're, they're meaningless, they're empty. God admonishes Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, says, do not look on Saul's appearance or on the height of his stature. I've rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Paul urges Christians to train for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and for the life to come, 1 Timothy 4. Proverbs 31 says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Peter encourages women not to obsess over their external appearance, but instead let their adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Paul said similar things in 1 Timothy 2. Paul gives the encouragement, 2 Corinthians 4, that though our elder self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day as we look forward to an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If your worth, if your value is wrapped up in the appearance of your body, the function of your body, your body's wearing out. It's passing away. But Christians are holding on to something eternal, something that's coming, something that's infinitely better. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So don't let your sense of worth be controlled by the whims of the world. Find your worth in God and his sovereign and good plan for your life. I love how Caroline Mahaney, her daughter Nicole, put it in their book, True Beauty. They say, we have been created in God's beautiful image and it is for this reason alone that we are truly beautiful. We are not beautiful because we fit the popular ideal of beauty. We are not ugly or unattractive because we don't measure up. Our beauty as human beings is not derived from ourselves. It comes from our beautiful God. They go on. Here is the fixed standard of beauty in our fickle culture. No matter our body type, age, skin color, height, or weight, whether we have a disability or deformity, whether or not we meet the current cultural standard, we are all beautiful because we have been created in the image of God. This levels the playing field. It radically redefines physical beauty, and it pulls our gaze away from ourselves and onto our beautiful God. So may God give us the enduring beauty of a worshipful heart that is gentle, quiet, servant-minded, and the strong faith of those who trust in God. May you be beautiful in your character and strong in your faith. You are a human being. You are wonderfully made by God, for God, 
in the image of God. Let's pray.